Hello, I'm Karsten Knox. This is Flaw in the Iris, the film podcast. This month on the podcast, I'm speaking to cinephiles about their picks for the best films of the 2010s. On this episode, Helen O'Hara, the editor-at-large at Empire Magazine and freelance film journalist. Listeners of the Empire Film Podcast will know her as their geek queen, and she's the author of books, including The Ultimate Superhero Movie Guide. We met at Picture House Central Cinema in London. By all means, start wherever you feel like starting. Is there an order to your list? Um, I mean, there's an order I wrote them down in, which might not be the same thing. I'll be honest, I'm very bad with lists. I'm really bad. I, I don't feel like they're part of my fandom. I think some people approach fandom in that way. They want to rank things. They want to compare things. That's how they assess films. And, and it's a totally legitimate way of doing it. It's not the way I personally kind of chime with, I think. So, I mean, every year, you know, for Empire especially, but sometimes other publications, they ask me for my top 10. And every year I'm sort of, I do it off the top of my head as quick as I can, because I feel like even if I miss things out, even if I get things wrong by my own standards, you know, by, by in terms of what I like during the year, then at least that way I haven't sort of agonized over it for months because I think I'd still get it wrong. Um, so I, I just, yeah, I'm a little bit agnostic, I guess, on lists or something. <laughs> I'm not sure what the word is. So yeah, so for today, I basically did do it off the top of my head. When we spoke, you had given me warning. I want to give you credit. You gave me warning and I said, yes, I'll do that. And then I forgot. So it's my fault I did it off the top of my head. But well, this is good. This is good because you're, it's really what comes first to mind, which feels to me like a completely justifiable way of assembling a list I like this. I think so. I think so, yeah. I think it's... Um, I did have a number one because as soon as we talked I thought you know what I, th- I think that's my number one um, but everything else is a little bit like it could be any of these you know so just go with the first ones that come to mind a few people are probably overrepresented. I've got the Coens in there twice I've got the MCU in there twice which will not surprise anyone who listens to the Empire podcast um, and I've got a uh, have I got two I've got two 2019 films so possibly I'm guilty of you know prioritizing the most recent stuff because you've had to write a list of 2019 <laughs> the best 2019 haven't you professionally have. yeah so that's in my head already um, and actually I've only got one of my top four on this list because one of them I feel like it's it's allowable by your standards but it isn't allowable by Empire so spoiler parasite fantastic incredible film here in the UK it doesn't come out until 2020 so it's not actually eligible for the top 10 that I've written this is a problem where we live too because so many films you you might see them at the local film festival but do you include them if they only had one screening and they haven't been able to I, I don't want to feel like an uh, elitist by mentioning films that no one else has had a chance to see it, it, it is a real problem and I feel like I don't want to overlook things that are good and that people um, might benefit from me you know raving about because they they might not hear about them otherwise I think that's one of the jobs of a critic is to actually tell people this little film that you've never heard of this is good and worth seeing but yeah I mean I thought Parasite was stunning I uh, knew nothing about it going in and I'm not going to spoil anything here it's one of these films where everything unfolds in a logical coherent manner and everything comes as a shock and it is stunning when a filmmaker can pull that off and I think it's done so brilliantly here and there is so much subtext and there is so much substance to it as well um, I think it's practically perfect I just love it okay so we're, we're kind of going from the bottom upwards uh, at that point so that makes sense so uh, Inside Out is the next one I had on there so I just think it's again an astonishingly clever film because that film 
it's two different movies happening at once. So kids are watching a film about some colourful characters, interesting, fun characters. They may or may not kind of get the whole representing emotions. It doesn't really matter either way. They're going to have a fun time. And adults are watching this incredibly nuanced, incredibly specific, incredibly grounded in psychology analysis of what what it means to be depressed, what it means to suffer trauma, what it means for your brain to kind of turn against you. It's incredible, that film. And, and I feel like genuinely, I know it's a big, you know, big budget Pixar movie and therefore it's kind of dismissed in some quarters as popcorn. That film intellectually is up there with anything this decade, any art house effort, and I just think it's brilliant. I can't argue with that. That's that's absolutely right. I, it is a pretty amazing movie. Uh, I, funny, I don't, I, I don't uh, have a lot of animated films in my sort of thoughts when I think about these lists. Although Coco was one that really just just crushed me. So that probably was in the was in my mind. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, you know, there are great animated movies out there. I mean, The Red Turtle actually would probably be on my list as well. To my shame, I have not yet seen um, I've Lost My Body, which I need to need to sit down. Right, just arrived on Netflix, just, I gather. Yeah, just started, and I've heard great things, and I feel like that's going to be very much my cup of tea. But I haven't watched it yet. And I'm just kind of blanking what else has been out this decade, which is pretty terrible. But yeah, Coco was great. And, and I think Pixar, just in terms of consistency, I, don't, I think there's hardly anyone like them. Yeah, we can criticize Cars 3. We can criticize, well, Cars and Cars 2 also. And we can maybe criticize The Good Dinosaur, which I think we've all agreed to just forget about and assume was Disney. But otherwise, they, you know, they barely put a foot wrong. And, you know, you look around that studio, you see them taking big risks. You see that those risks then infecting Disney animation and them having gone kind of the same way and also being more daring than they used to be and and that's good for everybody and then you have you know the, the smaller studios obviously you've got you know Studio Ghibli and, and it's and it's offshoots in Japan creating this incredibly flourishing industry there you've always had a strong thread of French animation and then Ireland is coming up I don't know if you guys know Cartoon Saloon so they made uh, The Secret of Kells. Um, oh, yeah, sure, I know that. Yeah, they've, I mean, I think there are basically uh, three Oscar nominations in, in four features. And the other one was very much a kind of a kid's TV feature. So their consistency rate is astronomical, and they're doing, you know, traditional 2D hand animation. So it's just, it's great to see that it, it is kind of still there and still flourishing. All right. What else is on your list? All right, so next... Um, I love Spielberg, right? I'm an absolute died-in-the-world Spielberg nerd. I, one of the reasons I got into film journalism, and it still hasn't happened, is to do a proper sit-down interview with Steven Spielberg. Um, so Lincoln is my choice. Okay, I very think, good. I think it's the best of his later era stuff. I think it's probably the best of this century for him. And I, I just think, I mean, it's an astonishing Daniel Day-Lewis performance. You know, a lot of the time when you hear about something that's like Oscar-nominated and Oscar buzz, you sit watching it and you're sitting there going oh yes this is this is a great performance oh what a wonderful performance this person is giving with Lincoln I had to keep there, sit there and remind myself regularly that he was not in fact Abraham Lincoln like I wasn't I wasn't conscious of it being Daniel Day-Lewis and and I don't think I'm a mad person so I feel like that's testament to him rather than yes. my mindset yes I hope okay. it's true and I I have I've talked about Daniel Day-Lewis with my friend Stephen on our podcast Lends Me Your Ears and 
felt like there are times when he is so good and he is so potent that you almost forget that there's anyone else in the movie with him. Like, if I think back on, on Gangs of New York, it's like, was Leonardo DiCaprio in that movie? I think maybe. Was he not? I don't know. I, yeah, I'm a little bit... I'm a, I'm, I'm a little bit unsure. But I wonder then, is he so powerful sometimes that it actually does a detriment to the film around him? But I think in this case, I think in the case of Lincoln, it isn't. Because I feel like, first of all, he's the president. And, and that sense of, you know, dominance is, is kind of appropriate. But I think what's also great is that Spielberg did what, what Lincoln did. And get this incredible cast of characters around him. So Lincoln famously hired a team of rivals, you know, as his cabinet. And Spielberg just hired this incredible cast of character actors and put them around. Obviously Sally Field, but, you know, David Strathair, my God, if you can get him in your movie, get him in your movie, it always elevates everything. Even the tiniest roles going to people like David Oyelowo and Adam Driver, just in there for about 10 seconds, you know? And you're still like, I buy every single one of these people. I love these people. Tommy Lee Jones in that movie. And Lee Pace playing against type is just the most horrific racist. It's just brilliant. I love it. Oh, yeah. In terms of my favorite Spielberg, I think Munich is still in. I still really, really love what he did there. Uh, and it's funny because I have friends who are Israeli uh, who have who are more a little more hawkish who feel that the, the film does disservice to to Mossad agents and I'm just like yeah but it's not it isn't really political it's just about how you can't a human being does a job and it's it's exploring the humanity within the frame of a thriller which is not something that you expect from a thriller and it actually forces you as an audience member to try to think what it would would it actually be like to be in this job and what sort of cost would it be to your personal life and I really like that about it it's kind of the anti-James Bond in a way isn't it because they are they're given a job which they believe in which they believe needs to be done which they believe is a is a you know all in all a good thing I think to do for the most part and it still tears them to shreds and I think that's really important to show that um, in some ways and yeah you're right that's a stunning film and great great performances and you know Eric Banner at the end of that film is he's kind of almost uh, in terms of kind of uh, you know emotional last scenes I feel like it's up there with Tom Tom Hanks and Captain Phillips you know and just final scenes that just make you see the whole the, the hero in a whole new light I, I think it's great I mean Spielberg doesn't really make bad films I know people like slag him off but like they're wrong let's just face it okay I, I don't love all of them but I, I recognize that they are all at a certain standard yeah, yeah. I feel like I mean you know I'm not going to rush to see Ready Player One over and over again but I'd still put it above about 90% of the films made so fair enough okay so next I have Patterson which is a film uh, Jim Jarmusch film Adam Driver again I don't know what's happening with him but it's kind of a film where nothing happens and it happens in a a way that's almost like zen meditation right somebody I recommended this to someone recently and they went oh my god it's so boring and I'm like it is but also it isn't because it kind of almost physically forces you to slow down and just look and just experience and just feel and I kind of love it but I cannot stress you enough if you're thinking about watching this film on my recommendation nothing happens there is nothing resembling incident except a bit with a dog the dog is great though so you just love hanging out with the dog the guy is great and his wife is lovely and a bit weird and they're all just great together and you just you have a nice time hanging out with them but it is it's meditation as cinema I absolutely agree too yeah I actually considered I think Only Lovers Left Alive 
is on my list because I just feel like it is the exquisite vampire rock and roll movie that I've always wanted and it was delivered complete to me. Uh, but Patterson has a special charm. And I love the, the, the occurrence of, of pattern within the story, like the twins that keep showing up. It, it, yeah, it's, it's super charming. Spoiler, that's not the only Jarmus on my list. So we'll, we'll get back to that. So next I put True Grit. Which uh, I know is kind of seen as a lesser Cohen, I think, by a lot of people. But I'm someone whose favorite Cohen Brothers film is Hudsucker Proxy. So I feel like I'm weird in my Cohen fandom. Mm -hmm. True Grit just got me because I didn't know the original film very well. I hadn't seen the John Wayne film um, before I watched this. So it was all kind of new and exciting to me in that sense. But the language is just so chewy. Uh, I mean, like Lincoln as well, actually. I really kind of love that sort of 19th century weirdly literate um, language like they didn't read a lot of books in those days but they read the bible over and over again and they read these particular kind of classics and quotes and so their language was just peculiar and and very poetic at times in a way that I really really enjoy and then to have that coming out of you know Haley Steinfeld's mouth as this phenomenal force of nature who basically forces Jeff Bridges Rooster to, to come along with her and do the right thing I just enjoyed I absolutely loved it and, and and my biggest criticism of the film is that there was category fraud in having him up for best actor and her up for best supporting um, at the Oscars because I, th I think those should have been switched but you know it is what it is yeah no, that, there's a whole other conversation about category fraud <laughs> yeah that's also a wonderful choice uh, I, can, I think I can imagine what your other Coen Brothers film is on your list because uh, I, I certainly considered it I am a, a dyed in the wool fan of certainly Miller's Crossing and uh, going up through into the 2000s I think there's I, I've been I've loved his, their films less recently but I, I have seen like Hail Caesar like three times and oh, I think Hail, yeah. I just so enjoy it I so adore I, you know. Hail Caesar and the Hail Caesar is some of the best single scenes I have ever seen in anything you know I mean the, the debate about religion just cracks me up every single time I watch it you know the, with the rabbi and the priest I mean it's literally like a joke a rabbi a priest yeah. and a minister walk into a bar and then give script notes on a story about Jesus you know it's brilliant um, so it, that kind of scene I just think is is incredible the, obviously the Lawrence Lawrence uh, Lorenz scene is yes. astonishing <laughs> would that it were would that it were so simple <laughs> it's complicated <laughs> oh, it's just amazing um, so yeah I, I adore that film actually it probably should be on the list damn it <laughs> uh, so next I put Captain America the Winter Soldier uh, again for those who listen to my podcast this, this is me living up to um, hype and I'm actually yes. going to tell you the next one as well after that I put Avengers Endgame uh -huh. so those are my two representative um, MCU movies uh, almost without exception my favourite MCU movies come from the Russo Brothers and the writing team of um, Marcus and McFeely uh -huh. I think they just have a superb way of getting to grips with what works about the character um, while also doing something unexpected and finding a new approach to it and I think they're astonishing engineers of story and I know that sounds like me saying oh it's a roller coaster ride and a theme park and not cinema because um, there is but there is engineering involved in big filmmaking and, and involved in good uh, narrative screenwriting and I think they are absolutely masters of that um, so I don't mean it as, as you know faint praise but I also just think everything's working in those two films in particular Captain America the Winter Soldier I think 
the tone of it is really interesting. I think they do get a flavor of that kind of 70s thrill that gives it something interesting and different from other Casting Robert Redford in it. Casting kind of Robert Redford, I know. Like Three Days of the Condor in a yes. way that's just amazing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that sort of, um, yeah, and it's a, a tip of the hat, you know, and I think I think that's really charming. And then Endgame just gives gives us this ridiculously triumphant finale to 10 years of filmmaking, 22 films. Again, an impossible feat of juggling that many characters, giving them all something satisfying to do. You know, fan service can be a very bad thing, but when it's done this well, what it actually is is audience-pleasing. And, and that's not a bad thing for cinema to be able to do because we are a demanding audience. We are clued up. We are incredibly aware of kind of tropes and storytelling tricks. So to succeed on that scale is not something that we should be kind of turning our noses up at. I just think it's, I think it's amazing. The one thing that I think sometimes gets missed in this controversy about the, these films and how a certain crew of people, and I know many of them in my film Twitter, uh, are upset about the, the way all the oxygen in the room are being taken up by these Marvel movies. There's a whole generation of kids who are growing up watching these movies and are thinking about them the way that someone like myself was thinking about Spielberg in the 80s and uh, and John, John Carpenter. This is their Star Wars. This is their Star Wars. This is their Indiana Jones. Absolutely. And this is going to make them passionate about cinema. And that is never a bad thing and uh, you know I, I, I know th- I know the same people I'm sure <laughs> I know the same kind of people who are you know this this is taking up too much, much oxygen but that is a function of marketing that's not actually the films themselves and they are films I'm sorry they just are do I agree with you know if, if the reports are true Disney block booking entire chains of cinemas and essentially forcing other films out no of course I don't and I, and I don't think that that's good for cinema long term I don't think that that's good for Disney long term actually um, because you want to give you know mum and dad something else to see if they don't want to see your movie so they'll still drive the kids to the multiplex you know so I don't think it is good if that's what's what's happening as, as far as that's what's being complained about but I do think these are good films and I think people who say that they're not are just kidding themselves I really do in 30 years people will still be talking about what they achieved this decade I mean even more so if they can't keep it up this is it I think these films are our sound of music or our Mary Poppins they are not are around the world in 80 days, you know? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, so next I actually also have Only Lovers Left Alive. Um, oh, wonderful. <laughs> that's great. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't expect to have two Jarmusch on here, but I guess that's the mood I'm in today. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like you said, it's the most atmospheric, the coolest vampire movie mm-hmm. ever made, by quite some distance, actually. Mm-hmm. And that casting, you know, Tilda Swinton, If you again, if you can cast Tilda Swinton in your movie, cast Tilda Swinton she's one of those people who's just going to make it brilliant um, but then to give her what blonde dreadlocks and send her around the world in first class just swanning about being a vampire and then of course her younger lover would be Tom Hiddleston who by the way I feel like he's completely scuppered any chance there is of ever doing a proper Sandman movie so you know the, the comic book character sure do okay he's basically Sandman in this right And I'm not sure that's deliberate, and I'm not sure it's conscious, and I don't know how much Jarmusch or Hiddleston or any of those guys are into that. But Sandman is exactly how his character in that movie was, and that's exactly how he should be, how he should dress. So I don't know if you can ever do it now without people going, well, you're just riffing on Tom Hiddleston and Only Lovers Left Alive. Yeah, I didn't know. I hadn't yet cast the in- inevitable Sandman project, so I hadn't <laughs> thought about him in that part. But you're right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, down to the sort of the, the slightly moody 
you know, depressive tone. It's mm -hmm. 100% there. Yeah, I, I, one of the things I love about uh, Only Lovers Left Alive is that, that they make a point of traveling, booking the flights that only take place at night. Yeah. <laughs> They're on the red eye all the time. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, we must be getting close to the we end. We are, yeah, only two left. So Inside Lewin Davis is my oh, next Coens. Um, oh God, it's another Adam Driver film. This is embarrassingly non-representative, this like, so I'm going to have to redraft it. Uh -huh. but, um, but I love this movie. I think it's incredible. I think it's, um, it's a really cleverly layered film that doesn't kind of feed you all the answers to either the character or kind of itself and its story. It's got that weird structure, that, that little fiddle it does at the end. That I, again, I'm not going to say too much about, but it kind of... Mm -hmm. It changes what you thought you were watching. Yeah. Um, and, and the music is amazing. I mean, it's incredible. Uh -huh. So that doesn't hurt either. So yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure these are the right choices, but they're my choices so far. And I've just got one left. All right. So uh, what's your final one? Okay. So this was just the instinctive. What's my top film of the decade? Mm -hmm. Hunt for the Wilder People. Taika Waititi, mm -hmm. um, I think, is a genius. He's my only exception in the MCU in terms of who else I love in the MCU. It's Taika Waititi and Thor Ragnarok. But Hunt for the Wilder People came first and essentially got him that job. And it should. It should get him all the jobs for life. It is charming. It is hilarious. It is heartbreaking. It is... It's just brilliant. I just love it so much. I saw it in about six months before it came out here in the UK. I spent literally all six of those months recommending it to people. I've spent basically the three years since recommending it to people. I have had one person come back and say they were disappointed. And honestly, that guy seemed like a dig. <laughs> so, you know, I just feel like you can't really beat it. I, but, but it is, it's because it has, you know, it has so much heart and humanity and emotion to it. But it's also a crowd pleaser and a, and a hilarious comedy and, and just a delight. The, the part of that film that stayed, has stayed with me, I mean, there's a lot of it yeah. that has stayed with me, but it's the montage of... Um, Leonard Cohen's The Partisan. Uh -huh. Is that and the bit where it's spinning? It's the spinning, oh. yeah. And the camera just going, sort of panning, I guess. Yeah. And you're watching the characters through a wintry landscape sort of find their way. And the song brings this level of sort of gravitas, but with a bit of tongue-in-cheek yeah. that I can't quite describe. Yeah. But it's unique to what Taika Waititi does. It is ab absolutely right. And I think he, he talked about that a little bit to me for Empire, and I think it was literally one morning it snowed and they got that entire thing that day you know just it was serendipitous and magical and perfect um but there there, there is that kind of visual flair to it sometimes but also it's you know it's sam neil and uh, i was about to say ricky baker but that's wrong but it's, it's sam and julian's film mm -hmm. basically just being delightful together out out in the bush and uh and somehow forming this extremely odd couple friendship. Um, this little, you know, wannabe gangster rapper. And he's just adorable because he, he's, a, he's a twerp, but he doesn't know any better. He's 12. He's had an incredibly hard life. I mean, from that first moment of Ricky Baker's introduction on screen, so he's, he's sort of ushered out the police car. He walks around the house and gets straight back into the police car because there's no way he's staying in this place with these weird people. <laughs> And then he's ushered out again. And all we know about him is he's a bad egg, you know, and it just kind of goes on from there. I, I mean, I love it. I love it. I've, I don't know how many times I've seen it since, but it's a lot. Um, and like I say, I've had literally thousands of people that I've recommended it to, and literally pretty much all of them have loved it. So, 
and I think there's something to be said also for Sam Neill and oh, his gosh. incredible career. So and good. he keeps doing these wonderful little roles and then becoming a farmer pig master on, <laughs> yes. on social media. I just, I love that. I love that he, he, he actually names all the animals on his farm after his co-stars. Did you know this? Oh, so I didn't like, know that. I think Sean Connery is a chicken and actually went <laughs> off, ran off and got missing. And apparently Ashwari Rai was not impressed of a cow named after her, which was kind of culturally insensitive, I think, on his part. But Imogen Poots was delighted to be a pig, apparently. So, you know, I, I mean, honestly, the, the, surely what we should all be aiming for in this life is to have Sam Neill name an animal after us. That would be the ultimate accolade. Is uh, Jojo Rabbit on your best of 2019 list? I think it might also be a 2020 release here. I did like it a lot, but it's it's not quite up there with Wilder People for me. But it is it is very clever, and I'm looking forward to seeing it again. All right. Well, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Many thanks again to Helen O'Hara for being so generous with her time. This list-centric series of episodes will continue in the days leading up to the end of 2019. Next will be Ryan McNutt speaking about a film from his list, Star Wars The Last Jedi, which inevitably spills into our dueling takes on the newer Star Wars movie, The Rise of Skywalker, now in cinemas. I'll also be posting a conversation on the best hard science fiction of the 2010s, with Jesse Hiltz. Regular listeners to this podcast will know I co-host another one called Lends Me Your Ears with local arts writer Stephen Cook. On the episode up this week, we're discussing stealth Christmas movies. Those are films that include Christmas content but veer away from the typical treacle. Considered are films like Lethal Weapon, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and Iron Man 3 so the whole Shane Black filmography, as well as The Lion in Winter, In Bruges, and Tangerine. If you're listening to this in advance of Christmas and you live in Nova Scotia, I'll be on CTV Morning Live on Tuesday, December 24th, talking about this very subject, the alternative Christmas movie. Once again, my name is Karsten Knox, and thanks so much for listening to Flaw in the Iris, the film podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and write a review. You can also listen to the podcast on Stitcher. I'm reachable on Twitter at Flaw on the Iris if you like to talk about film or suggest a topic for the podcast. And you can read my recent film reviews at Flaw on the Iris at HalifaxBloggers.ca. The theme music is by Mind's Eye. See you at the movies. Yeah.